If you have a Bible, please turn with me to James chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 17. Way back in 1991, country singer Garth Brooks had the number one song titled Unanswered Prayers. And in that song, Brooks sings about a time when he was with his wife and he goes to a football game and he meets his old flame. And he remembers how back in high school, he used to spend every night just praying. If God would only make this girl his wife, he would never pray and ask for anything again. It is time past Brooks realized that God had a better plan for him. And then in the course of the song, he says, some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. And I sang along that song for decades and I always put myself in Garth's shoes or in Garth's boots. And the song always made me recognize that if God had answered my high school prayers, I would have never married my wife, Misty. But then earlier this year, I heard the song again and I realized maybe I had it from the wrong perspective. Maybe I wasn't the one praying. Maybe I was the old flame being prayed about. Maybe somebody had asked God to marry me, and now they were looking back, thanking God that they had dodged a bullet. <laughs> I know some of you are thinking, uh, no, Joe, nobody was praying to marry you. Uh, fair enough, but maybe that's, that's not the point. The point is that sometimes we forget we are not always the hero of the story. And other people always matter. Other people always be considered by God. But we get upset when God doesn't give us exactly what we want in the way we want. And we forget sometimes that God is not just responding to our request. He's responding to other people's requests. And sometimes those requests don't all match up in a way that we prefer. But God always knows what's best for us. And he knows what's best for everyone. And in this passage, we're going to explore a similar theme to that about trusting God's wisdom for our lives. And James challenges us to reflect on our own plans, our own desires, and how they fit in with what God wants. We often approach life with a blueprint in our minds. We're praying for specific outcomes, and we know exactly what we want to get. And so we ask uh, God to direct us directly for that. Yet God is gracious, and in his infinite wisdom and love, Sometimes he redirects us down to a different path. Or sometimes he just answers us with silence. And we don't know yet where he's leading us. And sometimes the prayers we receive are unanswered or God's way of rerouting us toward what he has something better for us. But too often, even knowing that, we want what we want. And so we don't even ask God to get involved. We make decisions without him. Think about how many plans you made this week with about work, about your relationships, or just about your vacation without consulting God. As we're going to see in James today, James is going to remind us of how foolish that is and that there's a better way for us. But before we get to that, let me pray for our time together. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing us to come together today to worship you. As we examine your holy word, we ask you to open our eyes and soften our hearts so we can see the beauty and truth within your scripture. Illuminate this passage so that we might better understand what you want us to know. And help us to obey all the commands that we find within this text. In your son's holy name we pray. Amen. So over the past few months we've been working through the book of James. And this letter is by Jesus' half-brother. And it's directed to a group of Jewish Christians that are spread throughout the Roman Empire. And they're facing persecution. And this book is sometimes called the Proverbs of the New Testament because James focuses on practical wisdom and he emphasizes ethical behavior 
and good works is evidence of a living faith. And what we've seen so far is that James consistently emphasizes living out our faith through our actions and with humility. And this passage continues that theme by addressing the attitude believers should have towards making plans. And we're going to read from chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. This is the word of the Lord. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. It's easy to misunderstand the main point James is making. He's not saying Christians shouldn't plan for the future. He's just saying that we should make our plans recognizing that we are not in complete control of our lives. Instead, we should consistently make a healthy allowance for God's sovereignty. And that if we're aware of this principle, and yet we fail to do it and apply it, then we're even more responsible for our sinful actions. And James gives us important and practical advice about how we should plan for the future. But before we get to that, we first need to consider three specific sins James is highlighting. Now, these are sins that prevent us from planning in a way that honors God. The first sin he talks about, which we find in verse 13 and 14, is the sin of presumption. A presumption is when an idea is taken to be true and often used as a basis for other ideas, although it's not known for certain. In daily life, presumption might occur when we make a decision or we form an opinion without having all the information. Our presumption can be correct, but it's often misguided. And for instance, you might assume that a coworker is lazy because they leave work before you do. What you might not know is that they get in work earlier than you do. Or that they take work from home. Or they get a family member who's ill and they have to leave early to take care of them. As we often see in the book of James, it's, a, it's our speech that reveals the orientation of our hearts. And in this case, it's a presumptuous speech of people who plan their lives and their futures without taking into consideration of God and thought for his plans. James says in verse 13, Come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. And presumption becomes a sin when we assume certainty in areas of our lives where only God has ultimate knowledge and control. It's an attitude that overlooks the sovereignty and providence of God, essentially placing our own human judgment and desire above his divine will. And this is a form of pride where we elevate our understanding, our imperfect understanding over God's perfect understanding. And a prime example of this type of sinful behavior is found in the first chapter of Deuteronomy. And Moses warns the Israelites not to go up and fight the Amorites because God says, you're not going to win. But they do it anyway, and they get crushed. And then Moses tells them, so I spoke to you, and you would not listen. But you rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the hill country. Then the Amorites who lived in the hill country came out against you and chased you as bees do and beat you down in Seir as far as Hormah. And you returned and wept to the Lord, but the Lord did not listen to your voice or give ear to you. 
It's easy to shake our head at these foolish Israelites. But if we're honest with ourselves, we admit we do the same thing all too often. We have to know exactly what God wants us to do. Yet we don't do it. Why don't we do that? Why don't we presume to know better than what God knows? I think a primary reason is because we act like atheists. Now, actual atheists, they say they don't believe in God, but they often live their life as if he does exist. They believe in things such as objective morality or meaning or things that would not exist in a godless universe. But we Christians act like atheists when we live as if God's existence just doesn't matter. As Pastor Gregory Brown says, believers act like practical atheists when we profess Christ, go to church, read our Bibles, but then on a daily practical level, including in our work, our family, and our planning for the future, our professed belief really doesn't guide us. We live a contradiction. We profess to rely solely on Jesus, yet we don't rely on Jesus when we're making our plans. Our hearts guide us rather than us being guided by God. And we're doing the same thing that these business people in James are doing. And that's the first sin we commit. The second sin, which we see in verse 16, is the sin of boasting. James says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Now, God has earlier warned us in the Old Testament about boasting. Proverbs 27.1 tells us, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Now, God obviously see this is so important that he has to remind us again in the New Testament. And James criticizes those who confidently speak about their future endeavors as if they have complete control and certainty over the outcomes. And this kind of boasting assumes a level of self-sufficiency and predictability that overlooks the unpredictability of your life and the sovereignty of God. But notice what James is not saying. He's not saying it's wrong to make plans or even that it's wrong to announce your plans. And these business people included most of the stuff we would see in planning. They had the when, tomorrow, the who, we, the where, this town or that town, how long, a year, the what, business, and the why, for profit. All that was fine. There was nothing wrong with planning the when, the where, the what, the why, and the how long. The problem was they left out the primary reason, the ultimate purpose for the trip. They left God out of the planning. As I've mentioned many times before, the very purpose of your life is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And since that is the ultimate purpose for our life, that should be the ultimate purpose for everything we do. That should be direct how we plan our lives and how we live them out. God should be therefore be the starting point of our planning. He shouldn't be an afterthought or something we tack on at the end. And when we do that, when we have glorifying God as our starting point, it changes our perspective. We'll no longer have reason to boast. And boasting in this context leaves out the most important thing. It leaves out God himself. And it shows that we made an error in our planning. Boasting reveals that we have a misplaced confidence in our own abilities, in our own wisdom, in our own power to shape the future. It's an attitude that elevates human planning above God's purpose and guidance. 
And when you think about it, boasting about the future is incredibly stupid and self-centered. Why should I boast about outcomes that I can't control? The number of things that I can control in this life are rather small and insignificant. I can barely even control my own body. And even that is difficult. Take, for example, the space between my tongue and my brain. Now, when my mouth is closed, that's only a few inches. But when I start talking, it seems like it's miles apart. Sometimes I start talking to my brain, it's like, what are you even saying? Where did you get this from? And this is why I literally have to write down everything I'm gonna say in my sermon. And I know it gets kind of stilted and awkward having to always look at my notes. But if I did, you wouldn't believe what kind of nonsense I would say in this pulpit. And that's a problem with thinking we're in control. If I can't even control my tongue and my brain, how can I control those things outside of my body where I have even less control over? And that's why pride is so dangerous. It makes us stupid and blinds us to how radically dependent we are on God. We can't even exist without God's direct intervention every second of our lives. If for one second God did not keep us in existence, we would cease to exist. Boasting about the future is therefore a sign that we aren't even aware of reality. We don't even know where we are. We aren't seeing things as they really are. And when we plan for the future, we should recognize that we won't even be a future unless God decrees it to be so. That's why we need to avoid the first two sins, a presumption and boasting. And the third sin found in verse 17 is the sin of omission. Now, this sin refers to the failure to do what we know is right or good. As James says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is a sin. This is extremely important, so we need to make sure we understand the key aspects of the sin of omission. The first thing we need to know is that a sin of omission involves a conscious awareness of what is right or wrong in a given situation. This means that we know what ought to be done. We know what God wants us to do, and yet we choose not to act on that knowledge. And the second part of the sin of omission is not about doing the wrong thing, but about failing to do the thing in the right way. It's about neglecting to do good or failing to carry out a morally right action. Now, for instance, imagine you're doing your morning Bible reading and you come across Proverbs 31, eight through nine, which says, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. But then you get to work and you hear of a coworker who is accused of doing something, making a mistake that's gonna get them fired. And you know the truth, you know it wasn't them, you know it was somebody else who did it, but you don't speak up. In this case, the sin of omission is your deliberate choice to withhold the truth. And this inaction directly contributes to an injustice against your coworker, which God has told you in his word not to do. The sin of omission highlights how we are morally responsible, not just for our actions, but also for our inactions. It expands the scope of our moral accountability to include the good that we also fail to do. By not doing the good that we know we should be doing, we implicitly choose to do evil. We choose not to do good. And as James is making clear, this choice, even if it's a passive choice, it's a sin. 
James is telling us that living out our faith is not just about avoiding evil. James is challenging believers to consider not only what they shouldn't do, sins of commission, but the things they don't do and they should, sins of omission. He's calling us to an active, engaged faith that seeks to do good in all circumstances according to the knowledge and ability given by God. So those are the three sins James is commanding us in this text to avoid. Sins of presumption, sins of boasting, and sins of omission. And to avoid those sins in our daily planning, in our decision-making, we need to practice humility and dependence on God. So how do we do that? I want us to give us one general rule that is broadly applicable for all of life. We practice humility and dependence on God in our daily planning and decision-making by committing to follow God's revealed will. We practice humility and dependence on God in our daily planning and decision-making by committing to follow God's revealed will. That's a life-changing truth, so let's consider what it means and how we can apply it to our lives. So beginning with Adam, all human sin has resulted from a refusal to seek out and do God's will. And that's why James is telling us that instead of being presumptuous and boasting about, we ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. And this just doesn't mean changing how we talk about planning. Now, growing up in rural Texas, all the old people had the same response whenever you asked them if they were going to do something. And their response was always, Lord willing. Are you coming to the family reunion? Lord willing. Am I going to see you on church on Sunday? Lord willing. If you, if you just went by what they said, you would assume that they were always following the will of the Lord. The problem is when we start mindlessly using a phrase, even a biblical phrase like this one, it can be, start to lose all its meaning. It may not even reflect our hearts at all. It's so much easier to say you're willing to follow what the Lord leads than it is to actually do it. So we need to change more than our speech. We need to change our hearts. And to do that, we need to start by asking what it means to follow God's will. Now, we often misunderstand what it means to follow God's will because we don't even look at the Bible and see what it says about it. So let's start by clarifying a few concepts. So theologians refer to two general wills of God. In the Bible, there's God's decretive will and God's preceptive or revealed will. And the first way the Bible talks about God's will can be called God's decretive will. And decretive means having the force of a decree, a decree or an official order given by somebody who's in authority, such as a king or a sovereign. And for example, the federal government has decreed that Thanksgiving will fall on the third Thursday of every November. And so they decree that, and so it becomes a federal holiday. But God's decrees are even more powerful. Whatever God decrees will come to pass. And that's why his decreed will is sometimes called his sovereign will. And another term for this is providence. So when we talk about the providence of God, we talk about the sovereignty of God, we're talking about his decree of will. Now we don't need to directly seek God's decree of will because he will reveal that when he's ready. And oftentimes this will is only realized once something has already come to pass, once what he has decreed has come to pass. And a prime example is this comes from the book of Genesis. We see Joseph in Egypt 
And Joseph didn't know why he was caught and thrown into slavery. Joseph didn't know why he was going to prison. It was only afterward that Joseph realized how God had used all these events to save the Hebrew people. The other way the Bible talks about God's will is his revealed will or his perceptive will. And perceptive means expressing a commandment or direction, giving as a rule of action or conduct. That's also sometimes called his, his moral will, since it's the revealed, the commandments of God's law that he's revealed to us. And the Ten Commandments are the most famous example of God's moral will. But to make it easier to understand, we'll simply refer to God's preceptive will, his moral will, as his revealed will. It's his reveal, his will that we see revealed to us in Scripture when he gives us commands. And this is the will you need to focus on seeking. In fact, Jesus makes it clear in John 14, 15, that if you love him, you will keep his commandments. This means the way you show love for God is you keep his commandments. You follow his revealed will. You love God by doing what he has revealed to for you to do in his commands. And since it's God's will that we keep his commands, we need to know what those commands are. That's why we need to search scripture and find those. And for example, here's a, a sampling of a half dozen commands of Jesus in the Gospels. Jesus tells us to repent, to be reconciled to fellow believers, to not lust, to not swear falsely or break an oath, to love and pray for our enemies, treat others as they want to be treated. How often do we do these things? Whenever we ask, what is God's will for my life? This is where we must look. The most direct way we can know God's will for us is to simply look at Scripture and find where he's given us a command. And that's it. Those are the two wills of God that's mentioned in Scripture. Now, you might be thinking something's missing. What about his will of direction? What about the questions I have for my life, like, where should I live? What kind of job should I take? Who should I marry? Isn't there a secret will of direction to seek about what I should do to find all these answers? And the surprising answer is no, there's not. As Pastor Theologian Kevin DeYoung explains, does God have a secret will of direction that he expects us to figure out before we do anything? And the answer is no. Yes, God has a specific plan for our lives. And yes, we can be assured that he works things out for our good in Christ Jesus. And yes, looking back, we will be able to trace God's hand in bringing us to where we are. But while we are free to ask God for wisdom, he does not burden us with the task of divining his will of direction for our lives ahead of time. The second half of that sentence is crucial. God does have a specific plan for our lives, but it is not one that he expects us to figure out before we make a decision. Now that answer may surprise you, but it's thoroughly biblical. Nothing in the Bible implies that God has a secret set of instructions that he wants you to know, but he's keeping from you. And if you don't ask for it, well, your life's gonna be a mess. Let me repeat that because it's essential that you understand this point. There is nothing in the Bible that implies God has a secret set of instructions for you. And that if you don't find out what those are, well, then what he wants for you is not gonna come to pass. Think for a moment, what kind of God would do that? What kind of God would hide his will from you and ask you to search for it and hope you find it? That God knows what he wants from you and he knows what he wants for you, but he's not gonna tell you what that is. He's gonna keep you randomly guessing 
or expect you to interpret some kind of vague signs that you see. And if you guess wrong, oh well, guess your life's just not gonna turn out like you wanted it to. That would be sneaky and cruel. And our God is not sneaky or cruel. And remember when Jesus said, therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. How would that make any sense if God wants to guess what his unrevealed will was? Or our direction, will of direction for our future? We would always be worrying that we're gonna get it wrong, that we're not gonna figure out what God wanted and our lives aren't gonna be the same. Of course, we would worry if we had to guess what God wanted from us from every moment. But scripture makes it clear that God is in control of the future. And then we can trust him with the things will turn out like he intends. And here's why you can relax about the future. If you are working on fulfilling God's will, his revealed will, right now, then you are doing what he's asked you to do. You can start there and then make decisions for your future. God is a planner. God expects us to plan too. We just need to worry less about the outcomes that are gonna happen tomorrow. Instead, we need to focus on fulfilling God's revealed will today. As Jerry's sister says, God is surprisingly flexible about the future because he's supremely inflexible in the present. God is surprisingly flexible about the future because he's supremely inflexible about the present. So we need to spend more time and energy following God's commands, following his revealed will. And there are two key commands of God that affect how we make decisions. The first is Proverbs 4, 5, which says, get wisdom, get understanding. God commands us to get wisdom. This is one of the key things if we want to be happy in our planning and have our plans come out right. As theologian John Frame says, wisdom is not only obeying scripture in the big obvious ways, it is also, according to Proverbs, intelligence, knowledge, skills, understanding circumstances, including likely consequences, self-knowledge, understanding of other people. It is discernment that comes through reading scripture, but a reading arising out of spiritual maturity and experience. Thus, it is the ability to weigh pluses and minuses of the alternatives before us. This, too, is obeying scripture, for scripture requires us to be wise, to redeem opportunities. God wants us then to make decisions as wisely as possible. This is his preceptive will. Another essential command for decision-making is found in Matthew 6, where Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And Jerry's sister explains this passage by saying, if we seek God's kingdom and righteousness, which is the will of God for our lives, then whatever choices we make concerning the future become the will of God for our lives. There are many pathways we could follow, many options we could pursue. As long as we are seeking God, all of them can be God's will for our lives. Although only one, the path we choose, actually becomes his will. Now, if we're not careful, we'll get into deep philosophical waters trying to understand potentiality and actuality and how all this fits in with God's decreed of will. But for now, I want to keep us focused on the practical. So let's understand how we apply God's revealed will. And let me try to simplify this as much as I can. We can outline God's primary pattern for decision-making as follows. Step one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, 
And then love your neighbor as yourself. And then step two, make whatever choices seem best and wise for your life. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then make whatever choices seem wise and best for your life. In other words, become the kind of person God wants you to be. A person who desires to glorify God and glorify him forever and obey his commandments. And then use wisdom and freedom God has given you to choose the direction of your life. So why will this work? Why is this a a secret way to get what we need? Because if we love God with all that we are, then we will believe the gospel and we will put our trust in Jesus. And because of our faith in Jesus, we will be united to him. And because of our union with Christ, we will have the Holy Spirit within us. As Jesus tells us, the Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth and help us to become more like Jesus. And our role as Christians is to become more like Jesus so that we could do what Jesus would do if he were living our lives. We also see this in Psalm 2510, which says, Who then are those who fear the Lord? He will instruct them in the ways that they should choose. The Holy Spirit will guide you in the ways you should choose. And as Philippians 2.13 tells us, it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. In other words, the more we seek to become like Jesus, the more we, God will work in us to help us make choices that glorify him and that will lead to our ultimate happiness. And this is the secret to living as James is calling us to live. If we are committed to following God's revealed will, we will not commit the sin of presumption. The sin of presumption arises because we don't consider God in our planning. And we were genuinely committed to God, following God's revealed will. Our actions and our plans will be guided by a conscious effort to seek and understand and align with what God wants for our lives. If we are committed to following God's revealed will, we will not commit the sin of boasting. Boasting stems from a pride and self-glorification where we attribute success and achievements to only the things that God can bring about. And when we align ourselves with God's will, our perspective shifts from self-centeredness to God-centeredness. And we become more aware of God's grace and providence in our lives, recognize that the talents, the opportunities, the successes and blessings, they all come from him. Nothing we do came from ourselves. And this acknowledgement leads not to boasting, at least to gratitude, as we understand that any accomplishment is a result of the good things God has given us, not just our own capabilities. And if we are committed to following God's revealed will, we will not commit sins of omission. When we are truly committed to following God's revealed will, our actions and our decisions will be actively guided by his commandments and teachings. And this commitment involves not only Avoiding the wrong things, but they will be proactively doing the things that we know we're supposed to be doing. And when we're truly committed to doing God's will, it naturally leads to a lifestyle that seeks to fulfill all godly responsibilities. And this will avoid sins of omission. And the beautiful part is that when we are committing to following God's revealed will, it not only leads us away from those sins that James warns us about, it leads us to what is truly going to make us happy. It leads to flourishing and biblical happiness. And Augustine, one of the greatest theologians in church history, 
summarized all this by saying, once and for all, I give you this short command. Love and do what you will. Love and then do what you will. So commit to doing this. Commit to loving Jesus with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Commit to loving your neighbor as yourself. And then go make whatever decisions seem wise and best for your life. And then trust it all to Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word, a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. As we reflect on the teachings from James, we are reminded of the transient nature of our existence and the fleeting mist that represents our earthly journey. We confess that too often on this journey, we take the path of self-assurance and pride, planning our lives as if we were hold the world in our hands. We acknowledge, Lord, that we need your guidance. We need the humility to say we will act only if it is your will. We ask that you instill in us a heart that seeks your will in all things. May we not be consumed by the arrogance of our plans or the pride of our accomplishments. Instead, guide us to align us, our desires with your divine purpose. Grant us the wisdom to recognize the opportunities to do good that you place before us and the courage to act upon them, not overlooking what is right and just in your eyes. In moments of uncertainty, when the future seems hidden in the mist, remind us of your constant presence. Help us to trust in your unfailing love and sovereign power, knowing that even when our plans fall apart, your plans for us stand firm forever. We commit all these things into your loving hands, trusting into your eternal wisdom and grace. We pray all these things in the precious name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.